Hello, everybody. I'm Casey Forbes. And I'm Sarah Cuvion. And we are Let the Good Crimes Roll. We are actually the sick Let the Good Crimes Roll. <laughs> we are struggling in here. Um, but so this week, Sarah is going to be covering a case that happened out of New Orleans. A crazy case. Yeah, it just keeps getting worse, you guys. But before we get into that, I do have our little murder minute. Okay. From, okay. If you guys listened to last week's episode, my friend Megan had given me this book called The Ultimate Serial Killer Trivia Book by Jack Rosewood. Love it. So I kind of was diving into it and I just wanted to give you guys like a little snippet of it. <laughs> it's not funny, but it's kind of funny. So what female serial killer killed to support her shopping addiction? Oh my God. Is Which it, I'd never heard of this before. The Terry Carrier. <laughs> Literally your mom first oh came my to God. my mind. <laughs> Her obsessive makeup addiction. (laughs) I know. But okay, so over four weeks in 1994, American serial killer Dana Sue Gray killed three women for the sole reason of getting her fix of retail therapy. Oh my, you know she could get a job, (laughs) right? I know, right? You know that's how that works. Yeah, Dana Sue Gray was in financial trouble, so she was unemployed and had built up a mountain of debt. So desperate for money that she went to extreme lengths to fix her issues. So she began murdering people for money. Like she strangled three women. She strangled three like women. Like she stole from them. Like yeah. stole their credit cards and she, stuff. So this was around Southern California, and barely an hour after these women's deaths, she used their credit cards to go on wild shopping sprees. Is, is so like, and she finally got caught because her last uh, intended victim, like an antique store worker, survived her attack and was able to provide investigators with a description of Gray. Oh my god! Is that not crazy? That's weird. So it's just like, oh, I need money. I'm in debt. I need to go shopping. That woman looks rich. <laughs> and, you know, you couldn't do that today because no. so many of us may look a little boo, like not myself included, but there's women that look bougie and like you go to use their credit card and it's, it's like, like decline, decline. <laughs> You've reached your limit. Yeah. She spent it all on that outfit. You just killed exactly. her. Exactly. <laughs> you just oh never my know. Gosh. Is that not insane? Yeah. Just, I don't that's, know. That's mental illness. Yeah. At yeah, full I mean, capacity. It yeah. has to be. Oh, my God. I just couldn't believe that. So, Sarah, right. what case are we talking about? today and um stay tuned after the show i do have some factoids about the golden girls we're not diving in just yet to our golden girl minute we're gonna have a golden girl minute but it's not a series show i just have some random facts because i was sick this week um (laughs) the baby was sick this week we've got sinus infections like the rest of the louisiana like when one of us goes down like the whole our everything stops the house just crashes yeah Yeah. everything just stops yeah so uh so this week we were doing uh murder nation again blood on the bayou and this was Season one, episode two, Big Easy Black Widow. It just keeps getting worse and worse. Yeah. Like, I I don't know. And also, I finished writing this at like 1 a.m. And I haven't read back through it. So I'm hoping it makes sense. So if it doesn't, it, just well, stop me. Does it not remind you of that case that's going on right now of that woman who like poisoned? She poisoned oh. her boyfriend and then they dug up her ex-husband. Turns out he was poisoned. This is ongoing in Baton Rouge, y'all. I know they dug up her ex-husband. It, yeah, or he, I don't know if it's the opposite one was a boy she claimed they were both husbands but one she was legally married to one she wasn't I got you. but when they figured out that this guy was poisoned yeah they dug up the first guy and yeah. he was poisoned too holy moly okay so this story takes place in post katrina new orleans which i feel like it was like in 2006 right uh yeah katrina. So, katrina hit in 2005 2005 yeah. yeah which to me seems like just yesterday but i mean we're in 2023 now so it's, I know, so that it's was been a what, minute 15 
18 years yeah, ago? Yeah, it's been yeah. a hot minute. So it's just a whole, I don't know. It just seems so weird that that was so long ago and it seems like just yesterday because I remember mm-hmm. going through Katrina. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, vividly. It's noted that one of the first things to come back to the city after the hurricane was crime. And so I don't know if you guys are familiar with New Orleans or Hurricane Katrina, but New Orleans is basically like a little bowl. It mm-hmm. kind of sits below sea level. Surrounding it, teeth water out are levees. Now, when Hurricane Katrina came through, it was devastating. And really, New Orleans didn't even take a direct hit. It was really Biloxi that took the brunt of it, right? I think so, if yeah, I remember correctly. Because Biloxi, Biloxi was, was leveled. Yeah. yeah, it was. I was going to say, it was leveled. What happens is the levees are supposed to keep the water out. And we also have pumps in New Orleans to, uh, to pump water out, too. Well, a series of events happened. The levees failed. And also the pumps failed, too. Mm-hmm. Which I don't even think they have all the pumps working in New Orleans. Because if it rains hard, it starts flooding again. Mm-hmm. But... But because it is under sea level, the water has nowhere to go. So it just sits in the bowl. And basically, it was just catastrophic for New Orleans. A lot of the residents, if not most, were displaced. We even had another episode. I don't remember which episode it was, but we had another case in post-Katrina New Orleans. Oh, Zach Zach and Addie? Yeah, Zach and Addie. It was pretty baddie. Yeah. Yeah. That one. (laughs) The people like left, they went to like Houston and Baton Rouge and a lot of them didn't want to go back because I mean, they lost everything. Yeah. And we kind of encounter that in this one too. And let's be honest, like don't be offended, New Orleans people. It was kind of the downfall of Baton Rouge only because Baton Rouge is not equipped to take on the traffic. We don't have the interstate system to take on the traffic of the number of people that relocated here that's why do you remember the traffic, the traffic is afterward? horrible do you remember the traffic afterward after katrina i drive it every day it was, no this was like like oh right yeah like after. immediate it, yeah i remember thinking like driving down airline highway like why is it so crowded and and it's it's, so many people it's never, relocated. It never died down. We couldn't handle our infrastructure. Could not handle that influx of people that came and, it and didn't still leave. can't. That's what drives me nuts about like our it's gotten, our local officials. It's gotten better, but Ooh, girl, it's, I don't we know. still can't keep up with our rising population. You right, know? which I can't believe people are still moving here. But I, right, because the sad thing is, is that around here, a lot of places there's like one way to get there, and there's only so many ways. So, for example, we where we live, a lot of people that live in the next parish over come mm. through our town yes. to get to Baton Rouge yes. because there's not that many alter like alternates. Yes, and those alternates are crowded, and so to me that should be one of the biggest things our local leadership should be focusing on is expand it like fixing the infrastructure for mm-hmm. the population we have yeah but we got slammed because houston could probably handle that because they're already driven in houston right. traffic uh-uh i, I well they're already not. set up though for like a big yeah cru- like we're baton rouge just is not set up yeah. for to be on the same level as say houston and new orleans yeah and i'm not sure what the the holdup is in remedying that that problem i don't know i just cuss every morning when i'm going to work and when i come home you know i commuted even in post katrina i commuted from central where we live to lsu so i i'm right there with you with all that traffic i just Mm -hmm. remember it being awful it went from from like not bad to terrible but just just excruciating yeah it was awful all that, all, right, all of our we'll first step world back problems. Away from our, our tangent now. <laughs> so, yeah, when was this episode produced? It it couldn't have been that current. I mean, this yeah. whole series, this series, this is from the um that series, Burner Nation. Yeah, it's on Discovery Plus. Uh, and it's only four episodes. It talks yeah. about the Batner serial killer. It talks about the 
what we talked about last week. It talks about the woman that was killed. We already discussed that mm-hmm. case. Janor Guillory. Oh, yes. Okay, I do remember that one. Janor Guillory, yes. yes. So that's that's episode three of that four-part series. Okay. Uh, real quick with uh, 90 Day Fiance. Um, so they're doing something new where they pick, like, two cast members. So they pick, like... Jovi and say Andre, Andre, uh-huh. yeah, to go sit at a bar and like talk. Oh, so it's not just them sitting at the tell all yelling at each other, uh-huh. it's them like out doing things. Oh, and does it work? I mean, I don't really care for it because it's so staged, yeah, you know, because Jovi and Andre they like fight the whole time, okay. And then you have he's such a Andre is such a dominant personality, like, I know. I don't know about him. Yeah, he's just, you can't, I understand some of his points, but mm-hmm. like you can't, you can't have a discussion with him. No, you can't. Because he just talk like this and you don't know what he's saying. And then it, blah, 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 And every other word's the F word. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you're like, what did you just say? You know, but you know, he speaks Romanian. Yes. So I'd have to bring an Ada. I know. Oh. To be our translator. We so, should do like a little watch party with Ada in, in that. Like, is that, that how be... ro- is that why you married an American man? <laughs> is that what Romanian <laughs> men are like? He's not from he's not from Romania, he but where he's from, they speak Romanian. Mm-hmm. He's from Moldova. Moldova, that's it. Yeah. A country I thought was made up. So <laughs> no, not. had that's no so clue that was like a yeah, legit doesn't country. It, like, border? it does. Yeah. Their language is is Romanian. Yeah. yeah which yeah. I think is really cool. And um and don't get me wrong because he told Jovi that he was wrong for bringing his wife who is insecure on her own but on their one year wedding anniversary he brought her to a strip club and as he's sitting there like they're in their own little private section as he's sitting there watching like licking his lips while this woman's stripping she slapped him in the face <laughs> Like you idiot. I yeah. did not see that, but he's definitely yeah. right about that. Why would you why bring your wife to a strip club on your aunt? Because <laughs> he, like his words, I thought we would have fun. Oh jeez. What part of you mean you thought you would have fun? Yeah, exactly. Anyway, I'm sorry. So back to uh, okay. back to our story. Sorry. I didn't mean to digress no, 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 in no, that direction. Fine. Okay. So at this point, like New Orleans is ranked in the top five in terms of a murder rate, which is not surprising to me. And you know, today I think they're number one. I was gonna say I think they're number one. Yeah. yeah. So despite this, like New Orleans remains a city rooted deep in its faith. Church is a huge part of New Orleans. And we start to learn about a man named Ernest Smith. Now, Ernest Smith, a little bit of backstory about him. He was adopted as a child. He didn't really have a traditional childhood, and that made him appreciate family even more so as an adult. Uh, his mentor and minister said Ernest was, he was just a special guy. And like, I really get that feeling all throughout this documentary. Like, Ernest was a good-hearted mm-hmm. man that he would, like, truly give you the shirt off his back. And he was just genuinely a good guy. And very loyal. Yes. That's yes. the sense Very I loyal. Well. So in 1990, Ernest meets 26-year-old single mother, Emma Judge. And they met by Emma attending Ernest's ministry. So it took me a little while to realize that Ernest was a minister as well. Yeah. Also, so you know the, the minister that's his mentor, in this documentary, the old man. Mm-hmm. And then there's another lady like in yellow. That's the that's the old man's wife, huh? Yeah. Also, this documentary was almost done by the time I realized that they were married. Oh, you thought she was a random well, it, other minister? It, it, because they never interview together. Right. And they describe her as uh, a family friend. Like as... Oh, Oh, to Ernest. Yeah, Yeah. to Ernest. Not realizing that that they were married. Not realizing that they were together. Yeah. Anywho, just a little side note, y'all, if y'all end up watching this. That's his wife. Yeah. (laughs) Ernest fell head over heels in love 
with Emma. And in 1990, they well, get married. Can we just say, of all the pictures they show of Emma, and I'm saying this because I don't like Emma. There's like only one either. picture where I was like, they, they're just going on about this. They call her this beautiful Southern woman. Oh. There was one no. picture very early in their relationship where she was attractive. Mm-hmm. The rest of them, no. Because he was good looking. Yeah, he was a very good looking guy. But she was not. And I just don't get it. I, we, there are women like this that I look at. And I'm like, what do y'all see in her? Maybe she has a great personality. <laughs> or something else that <laughs> we're not going to discuss. Else. No. Lord. <laughs> All right. So in November of 1990, they get married. Emma was said to be the perfect pastor's wife. She did whatever she needed to help the church and whatever was necessary to keep his ministry running. And the family friend, the lady in yellow, said that Emma liked nice things. So she went into the business world and she had like a beauty supply store. She was also in real estate. She just kind of had her hand in different things to make herself some money. And seemingly successful. And seemingly successful. Yeah. Initially, the young family was living in New Orleans, but when Katrina hit, they evacuated to Texas like so many others. Because a lot of people from New Orleans evacuated to Texas, Ernest still had a thriving ministry. He was able to really even still succeed there. After the storm, Ernest wants to stay, but Emma is like, no, I want to go back to New Orleans. I want to get my businesses back up and running. Now, this is like, it took me a second, but it was like four months after Katrina. So things were kind of still opening up, but it was still very... Oh, I'm sure it was a disaster zone desolate, I guess, you know? So they were kind of going in two different directions. So Ernest stayed in Texas and Emma returned to New Orleans. Now I would imagine this is maybe where, I'm speculating, but this is maybe where some marital problems popped up. Mm -hmm. You know, you're not together. If you're totally fine with just like splitting, going your separate ways and doing your own thing, that's going to cause problems. Right. Our lady in yellow family friend says she wasn't really sure if they were having, having marital problems, but Like one night, Emma called her and said, you know, I'm not even sure Ernest loves me anymore. And in December of 2005, the couple meets with Ernest's mentor, the minister, and his wife, Lady in Yellow. And it's kind of like a counseling. (laughs) Like a little. When you say that, that's all I hear. Lady in Red. A little yellow canary flying around. Yeah. So they, they kind of like go for like a counseling session dinner kind of thing. And Emma's willing to make things work. And Ernest seems to be excited that he's back in New Orleans. And they stay. They kind of get back together. And they go on a cruise to rekindle their relationship. And, and nothing they- screams happiness like a cruise. <laughs> like Let's a be cruise. honest. <laughs> you need to rekindle that flame. Go on a little four-day cruise down to Mexico. They're so fun. They're so much Who's fun. Special? Was it Chrissy's? Bachelorette. Oh my God. Yeah. I got the picture right there here in our office. Because there's a port in New Orleans and a lot of like carnival cruises leave from there. So it's an easy drive for us. And we went on Chrissy's bachelorette trip and we had the best time. The best time. Like not... Like when they said they went on a cruise, I said, "Well, you can't come back not happy." From I know, a cruise. and well, and after they came back, nothing else was really ever said about any problems. So yeah. it maybe that did the trick. But in uh, on April twelfth, two thousand six, Ernest is on the phone with his minister mentor, and he says, "You know, I'm about to go ride my motorcycle." But then four hours later, he gets a call from Emma saying that Ernest is gone. To which he replied, "As I would, gone where?" I know. Let's quit <laughs> like, describing yeah. people that die as gone. Yeah, I mean, so Emma tells him, you know, Ernest is dead. 
this is obviously devastating for them. They had just talked hours earlier. They consider Ernest like a son, mm-hmm. you know? So this is this is horrific for them. And Emma explains that someone was trying to rob Ernest and steal his motorcycle. So at this time, people are kind of starting to return after Katrina, but this also includes like criminals are starting to return. Mm-hmm. The murder rate steadily climbs each month after the storm, but the number of police officers remained down. And we learned that, Ernest had gone to an event that night called Bike Night. A friend of Ernest, Ronald Mason, recalls going back home with Ernest and having like a brief conversation with him. Ernest brings his bike up to the door. Ronald Mason leaves. But then, and I guess Ronald Mason was like out of sight or whatever, um, because that's then that Ernest is gunned down right there. He shot two times once outside, and then he kind of stumbles his way inside where he dies on, like, the stairway up yeah. to their apartment. And I don't know if it's in this episode or in another episode where they said that um the reason, one of the reasons for the decline in police officers was because a lot of them were dealing with their own stuff from Oh, yeah. We Katrina. get into that. We get yeah. into that. Yeah. And by bike, she means a motorcycle, not... Yes. Um, not, a, like, a little pedaling bike. It's like a flame <laughs> motorcycle. You see, like, a bunch of men on pedaling bikes. Yeah. <laughs> bike night, boys. That screams macho to me. Let's meet it church (laughs) emma tells detectives that she had been sleeping upstairs in her bed the whole night because she had a toothache and had taken some over-the-counter medicine she awakens to hear Ernest calling out for her and she goes downstairs and he tells her he's been shot she says she calls for an ambulance but emma tells her friend later you know because of where we live they take a while and by the time they got there Ernest was gone died (laughs) thank you for the clarification you're welcome he was dead (laughs) he had not gone around the corner to the store (laughs) the like we said before the place they're living was pretty much abandoned they're in they're living in an apartment complex but they're the only ones there it's very dark very quiet part of town and a reporter had mentioned like if you're going to kill someone this would be the place to do it because there's not gonna, there's nobody there to witness anything. Right. There's no cameras. Yeah, there's no anywhere. cameras. It's pitch black in some of these neighborhoods because the power hadn't been turned back on and, you know, people just hadn't returned. So this makes law enforcement's job even more difficult. And like you had mentioned, the police department at this time was in absolute chaos in terms of investigations, like and being able to stay on top of violence that had come back through the city. Like it was tough because, like you said, they're dealing with their own things. You know, the police force during Katrina didn't have like the the best rep because some of the police were like defectors. They were part of the looting and stuff. So it's not only do you have some that haven't come back yet, um, you have some that you can't come back police wise, you know, because they weren't exactly the good guys because they were busting windows and yeah. stealing TVs. TVs. <laughs> yeah. So that all of that makes investigating murders and staying on top of it really kind of hard. The assistant DA explains that, yes, there was like the typical evidence that you would find at the murder scene, like the blood and shell casings, but no one really saw what happened. So without an eyewitness, it just becomes a cold case. Yeah. And after Ernest's death, Emma finds comfort in one of his friends, James Rain. Hmm. Hmm. They began dating and James and Ernest. Oh, so James was actually 
a friend of Ernest's because they had become friends during their days in the military. And James really looked up to Ernest, it is said. They both had like difficult upbringings and to a certain extent, but landed with good families. So they had a lot to to bond over. They were really similar in that respect. In the summer of 2006, Emma and James moved to Poplarville, Mississippi, and they built a giant house. One year after Ernest dies, Emma and James marry. Emma invites the minister friend and his wife to Poplarville where they notice that Emma has, she's gotten really thin and they're like, is something going on? They're just, that's just a little something they notice, but they do make the statement like their house is absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Like he's that there's like big screen TVs in every room. He's like, even the bathroom. <laughs> what a genius idea. You don't miss it. You don't miss a single episode. On October 21st, 2011, Emma is on what she describes as a business trip in Arkansas. She calls James's mother and says that, you know, I can't get a hold of James. Can you go out there and check on him? That's when his mother goes to their home and she finds James shot in the head and the neck in his bed. Like, what a sight Mm -hmm. to have her walk into. Goodness gracious. Police figured that James was either in bed sleeping or watching TV. They noticed that there are a few things out of the ordinary from how they would have been. Like they had an extensive surveillance system, like cameras on the inside and outside of their house. But somehow or another, the video systems failed. A little bit about Poplarville is like kind of like the place where people kind of know each other either directly or through family or friends. You know, I feel like it's kind of like central, like Mm -hmm. everybody knows everybody, but kind of. There was a witness nearby that she stated she remembers hearing two females talking on the property and pointing to lights outside saying, as long as that one isn't working, you're fine. And one of those females is later learned to be Emma. So like, I'm just curious if this was in a Because they don't really specify where she hears this conversation. No, she just said that they were out. She was outside working in her yard and she hears the two females, one being Emma. So this is a neighbor. This is a neighbor. Yeah. Because she was doing some work in her yard. So Emma's telling somebody, look, if it's facing that way, you can shoot. Nobody will see you. (laughs) You'll be good. Well, and then to further that. It's like, oh, hey, Betty. Exactly. How are you this morning? Like, how about you look around, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Are you doing some gardening today? I didn't realize. Just scratch what I just said. Yeah. But to go even further, police obtained the surveillance footage from the house. And the last image seen is that of Emma approaching, like, the control equipment before the footage cuts out and goes black. <laughs> So we can infer that Emma had something to do with why the security cameras weren't working. It's a good bit. But police can't find a clear motive. And of course, as we know, Emma has a solid alibi. She was in Arkansas. Well, we learned that Emma was having a relationship with a man in Arkansas at the time James is killed. The man does corroborate her story. And police are like, okay, well, we need to question the family and friends. So, so they do. So this wasn't like some some conference for like for weaves? No. Or for this hair extensions. A, this was not a hair conference at yeah. all. <laughs> no. Okay. Just to clear that up. Yeah. So police questioned James's friends and family looking for answers when they kind of noticed that James's stepbrother, Alfred Everett, was kind of acting strangely. So at the time of James's death, Alfred seems nervous. And so I don't know why, but the family drives Alfred out to a local gym where they sit down and they have a conversation and they get him to tell them what he knew, which was all about the murder of Ernest Smith. Mm-hmm. <sighs> which was the last that. husband she, that, yes. that died. Yeah. Yes, the first husband that we know about that dies. Mm-hmm. Alfred tells them that Ernest learned that Emma and James were having some sort of relationship 
Ernest confronted James and tells him to stay away from his wife. Now, Ernest is really determined to fight for his marriage, but Emma and James want to be together. So they enlisted Alfred Everett to kill Ernest Smith. So just to clarify, Alfred and, and James are brothers. They're stepbrothers, yes. Stepbrothers. They paid him $10,000, but now... Alfred was worried that he's kind of the last man standing that could bring what happened to Ernest to the the, the authorities. So he's worried that he could be next. Well, and knowing Emma, uh, yeah. he's not wrong. The family is shocked and they expect Alfred to go to the authorities with a story, except that he doesn't. So that was in October of 2011. So in March of 2012, eventually the family members of James are like, okay, we got to go to the police ourselves. And they give a cold case detective the information that Alfred had told them. Now, Alfred knew certain details of Ernest's death that were consistent with the crime scene, like physical evidence, because it turns out that Alfred hid out of sight, waiting for a signal that Ernest was home. Ronald Mason, you remember the friend that accompanied Ernest back home that mm-hmm. night, yeah. had told police that he remembered a porch light coming on. And Alfred also knew how many times Ernest was shot. And there's no way that Alfred could have known those details unless he was there because there was no press for this case. The police reports hadn't been published. And turns out that there was actually an insurance policy of about $800,000 on Ernest, which police know would give Emma motive. So not long before the murder took place, Emma upped the insurance from 100000 to 800000 and named James Rain as a 50-50 beneficiary. Why would you, like, why would you even do that? I don't understand what the, why she so would do that. You're going to put the man who you're having an affair with. Exactly. As, as a, a 50-50 beneficiary? Like, that, that just screams red flag. Yeah. But... Jokes on Emma, because what she didn't know was that Louisiana law would prohibit James Rain from coming in to collect his half because Ernest had a biological daughter mm-hmm. and she was entitled to automatically get half of that 800000 so not James. Would it half the the other half to James or James just wouldn't be entitled to No, a James wouldn't be entitled to anything because okay. his half is going to go to the biological daughter. Good for you, Louisiana, getting something <laughs> right. Good for you. They really do look out for the kids in that, that respect. That is good. What did Ernest and I can't remember, did Ernest and Crazy Lady, did they have kids together? She had two two children from a previous relationship. But they they didn't have any together. But it doesn't say that they had any together. Okay. So yeah. his biological daughter must have been from a previous relationship as well. Yeah. So but yes. she got the other half. Yes, yeah, so she Good. got her four hundred thousand. Now detectives learn that Emma is being investigated for fraud because about a year after Ernest died, Emma's biological daughter goes into an office and forges the name of Ernest's biological daughter in order to get her portion of the insurance money. So essentially, all of the $800,000 is awarded to Emma through fraudulent activity. Like, But how selfish can you be? I know. You know what I mean? I know. You had this man murdered trying to give... I mean, what did the biological daughter do to you to where you want to make it... Not only are you taking her dad away, but you're taking away like any type of financial gain she would have. She's just a kid. I know. We're assuming she's just a kid. Well, even like a teenager, but still. I mean, it's like she had nothing to do Uh, with his murder. It's it's awful. So she's ultimately awarded the full $800,000? Yep. 
And that explains that big old house they built. Yep, it does. So cold case detectives go back over Emma's initial statement the night of the murder. Emma said that she couldn't hear that her husband had been shot because she was sleeping in bed after taking like some over-the-counter medication. But police are like, over-the-counter medication shouldn't... You know how that Advil knocks you out, It shouldn't impair you like that. (laughs) (laughs) Darn NyQuil. (laughs) (laughs) Benadryl. (laughs) They found that the bed was perfectly made. So <laughs> how could she have been sleeping upstairs? Like, Emma, just go mess your bed yeah, up. Yeah, but also bit. police noticed that uh, she had no blood on her and the blood spatter at the scene was undisturbed by her footprints, which is odd because the stairway where Ernest died was really narrow. So Emma coming from upstairs would have had to go around him. And there's no way to do that without getting blood on you or disturbing the blood spatter pattern. Like she'd had to pull off some Spider-Man exactly, stuff. Yeah, exactly. To hop, hop over him. So okay. that, that tells you right there that, okay. And if you look at she Emma, she is no Spider-Man. No, she wasn't where she said she was. Yeah. The phone records that night were accessed and Emma's first call was to Ronald Mason, not to 911 like you would expect. Now it's they say even Ronald Mason found that strange, but I don't really know what to make of this. Like why would you call Ronald Mason? Maybe as your just first see call? what he saw? You know, but maybe why wouldn't to... you call your husband's dying on the floor? Why wouldn't you call 911 first? No, I'm looking at it from like like crazy Emma's point of view. Yeah. Like like to say or maybe she called to see if i don't know like hey you're down there with him do you know if uh well because like from what from what i'm gathering she comes downstairs after she hears him calling and it from that point her first call was to ronald mason not 911 it's like did she know that ronald mason was walking to the door and who turned the light on somebody had to turn the light on well i mean my theory is that she she was down yeah she was downstairs my theory is that she was downstairs already waiting for him turned on the light to signal the stepbrother that's in the bushes or whatever so that way yeah so i mean i feel like she saw the whole thing happen i'm sure anywho it's also noted that Nothing was really stolen from Ernest. They don't say if a wallet or or anything was really stolen, but they do mention that his motorcycle with the keys nearby were were left behind. Yeah. They're like, if the motive was to rob something, wouldn't you take that with you? Because that's that's valuable. So now that Emma is a suspect in two murders, police really start digging into her past. And I'm like, this is where it just keeps going. Because I thought it was just the two. No, (laughs) ma'am. It was Emma's first husband. Not Ernest. Not Ernest. There was a previous husband. I think his name was Leroy? Leroy Evans. He was hit by a car and was paralyzed and he needed like a feeding tube. Do we know who was driving the car? No, we don't. That's where I thought, that's what I thought was going to happen was like, oh, she was like driving the car. She hired somebody to drive the car. accident. But the police talked to her former mother-in-law and they learned that Emma was actually the last person in the room before... Leroy's feeding tube was removed and he died of asphyxiation. What a asphyxiation. horrible death. Yes, exactly. What a horrible death. And like her friends didn't even know she had a first husband. Like they thought that Ernest was the first. Like the minister friends? Yeah. The minister friends, they th- they were like, what other husband? I mean, this is why we subscribe to background checks, know, huh, Sarah? Right? Exactly. We been just verified. don't know yeah, who you are. And they're <laughs> ben, not a sponsor, just so y'all know. Benverified.com, but you should sponsor us. I know. <laughs> We give people a lot of reason to exactly. enjoy. So in 2013, this case is brought before a grand jury and they issue an indictment. As police are getting ready to arrest Emma, they learn that she just hightailed it out of town. So Emma, she just kind of goes about her life, never really thinking that she would be caught. And she marries husband number four. <laughs> 
Now, they're living in Missouri when she's arrested, and detectives tried to tell the husband what she had done, but he didn't want to believe them. They're like, no, you are, you are going to be like the fourth husband that's probably going to die. I so. mean, like she gets husbands like I find potato chips. I know. How does she get them so fast? I know. Like, like what, what is, is the, it? Is there like a website we're not aware of? <laughs> Getmarriedquick.com? Like, I have a hard time finding a date. I know. And you're attractive. <laughs> She's not attractive. <laughs> so on August 12th, 2016, both Emma and Alfred stepbrother are convicted she's convicted of second degree murder which in louisiana automatically gets you life without parole and in 2014 emma's daughter is convicted of forgery good and gets 10 years i say probably on but i think i probably meant probation yeah (laughs) 10 years probation in 2016 emma pleads guilty to 34 counts of tax fraud and gets two additional years to her life sentence and has to pay 90 over ninety four thousand dollars in restitution to the irs which I don't think they should expect any of that to come. Well, I wonder if the stepdaughter got any any money at all from that life insurance. Ernest's stepdaughter. Oh, you mean like the biological daughter? The biological daughter. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, they don't really say. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe if like when she sold that house, May- you know, yeah, sold all that property, that house or something. But she'd had to pay for her uh, for her attorney's fees and yeah, stuff. It's true. So at the end of the uh, this episode, they say that no one has ever been charged in the death of Emma's first husband, Leroy Evans. The investigation into the murder of James Rain is still ongoing. At the time of this documentary, the um, they say the investigation into the murder of James Rain is still ongoing. And let's be honest. I mean, like, they're not probably not going to no. spend a lot of resources on it since she's already in jail for the since rest she's of her already life in jail. without the benefit of parole. So, But it doesn't, like... Uh, like there's a small part of me that wonders like okay well what if somebody pulled the trigger it wasn't her well, yeah. like who like who was it and you don't think it like it wouldn't have been alfred because he no. was scared like, for his own life so who did she get yeah, to kill him? i don't know but that's that's the thing like i don't know but emma has denied involvement in the murders of any of her husbands and she did not want to comment on this documentary you shouldn't emma because yeah, we don't say. believe you yeah we're not gonna believe a word you say that's why like if i tried to be a journalist i'd say emma would you would you like to comment i'm innocent <laughs> <laughs> Like that lawyer (laughs) from last episode. Like, are you sure that makes sense? Yeah, that doesn't sound (laughs) good. Sound right? Just take a moment and talk about your life. Think about it a little more. (laughs) So that's the story of like, what last name did they use? Emma Rains. She yeah, she goes by Emma Rain. Emma Emma, Rain. Yeah, Emma Rain. Now, wow. So it was Emma Judge Smith Rain. Okay. Wow. (laughs) She isn't. So if you are in a woman's correctional facility um, and Emma takes a liking to you, <laughs> be careful. Yeah. Or if Emma says, hey, I haven't heard from Sally in, in uh, cell four. You want to go check on her for me? Don't go in alone. Make sure you have a witness because she witness. killed Sally. Goodness yeah. gracious. You know, Emma is probably I've watched a lot of Orange is the New Black. Em- mm-hmm. Emma's probably like the hairstylist up in oh, there. Probably. That everybody loves. Yeah. Like, girl, what you in here for? Yeah, oh, I'm- I mean, she seems from everybody, all accounts, she seemed really personable. Yeah. All this kind of, like, you know, a delight to be around. She's so. like, they say I killed my four husbands, but, you know, they, they're they not, it's not true. Yeah, exactly. It's not true. I lived in, like, the I highest mean, uh, death rate city in the world. <laughs> Why would you say that? Oh, no. Goodness but. gracious. But that's the yeah. story of the Black Widow of New Orleans. So. Yeah. Okay, so I did promise everyone um, a Golden Girl Minute. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your 
up. So I have, I'm on mentalfloss.com. Mentalfloss? Mentalfloss.com. And I have 20 facts about the Golden Girls because next week we will start our Golden Girl Minute. But for those of you who are too young to even appreciate the Golden Girls and all their glory, I want to give y'all just a little couple of facts about it. If you haven't watched an episode, you really should. You should. It's it so good. So funny. It's still, like, it was filmed in, what, the 80s? Yes. But it's still um, so funny. Well, it made its debut on September 14th, 1985. Factoid number one. Lee Grant, an actress I have no clue who she is, was actually the first choice for Dorothy, and I did Google her. Lee Grant is no B. Author. That's all yeah. I can say. B. Author um, is a very distinct actress. Yes. She's very tall, has a very deep voice. She's very commanding. She just delivers her lines flawlessly. And most, like, she doesn't laugh a lot. I noticed that the other night I was watching, and there's an episode where she's, it it was the Grab That Dough episode, Mm -hmm. and she's laughing a lot. And I told Derek, I'm like, she does not laugh a lot. She really does. But she is, like, one of the main points of laughter. Yeah, because she's very sarcastic. And her, but her reactions to things, mm-hmm. like when Sophia yeah, yes. says something and she like, turns her head. Mm-hmm. Okay, so fact number two, NBC was against casting B. Arthur, so she was not their first choice. Mm-hmm. They really didn't even want her. And honestly, from what I've read, B. Arthur didn't want it either. Really? Yes. Rue McClanahan, who is Blanche, talked her into it. So number four, Betty White and Rue McClanahan, so Rose and Blanche, passed the time with word games when they played. This is Betty White had always been a fierce competitor when she appeared on Password back in the day, which apparently was some sort of show. Mm-hmm. And she game f- show. Yes, she found a kindred spirit in Rue McClanahan when it came to word games, and the two ladies frequently played alphabet games in between takes throughout the entire day of taping. So number five, Estelle Getty, who is Sophia, was one year younger than B. Arthur, her daughter. Yes. She was like, wasn't she the youngest cast member? Uh, no, Rue McClanahan oh, was. okay, but she yeah, played but the oldest character. She played the oldest, she played um, a daughter. And so, okay, so here's the, the quote. During the show's first season, it took the makeup department 45 minutes to transform Getty into Sophia Petrillo. That aging process became even more complex when Getty turned up looking even younger one season uh, when she'd had a facelift. Dang, girl. I'm sure they were like, <laughs> oh, damn <crap>. it. <laughs> so number seven... Rue McClanahan, who plays Blanche, her favorite episode, and one of my favorite episodes, too, was Journey to the Center of Attention. And that's the episode, which obviously we'll get to it soon, but when Dorothy and Blanche go into a bar, and Blanche is always the popular one, and she sings. Well, Dorothy sings, and she became the popular one, and Blanche. They went to the Rusty Anchor. The Rusty Anchor? The Rusty Anchor. What a name. (laughs) So number eight, Queen Elizabeth was a huge fan of the Golden Girls. And she invited the stars of the show to perform live at 1988's Royal Variety Performance in London. So they came in, had a full-blown set, and I guess did an an entire scene. Oh my gosh. Yes. Wow, the things you can get if you're like queen. I know. Because let me if I was rich and they were all still alive, I'd have them come in here in their like wheelchairs. (laughs) Like, do y'all remember y'all scenes? No, damn it. Um, so number 10, the other character's placement at the table was situation dependent. So the only one who had a spot at the kitchen table was Dorothy. And that's because she was so tall. Oh, yeah. So they couldn't have they couldn't have someone in the front because then they'd be back to the audience. Right. So it just depended on on the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 11, the kitchen set was a hand me down from a sitcom by the creator called It Takes Two. And on this website, you can actually watch 
I guess the it says, let's see, the main reason for its particular design was that it was a set left over from another short-lived Harrison. Harris is the writer and the creator. Mm-hmm. Sitcom called It Takes Two, starring Richard Crenna and Patty Duke. As a dual career couple, he was a doctor and lawyer with two teenage kids. That apparently it never took off. So they mm-hmm. reused the set. Oh. Let's face it, as much as we love that set, that is the most probably uncomfortable wicker furniture. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like one episode, Blanche is like, I'll just sleep on the couch. Like, no, you're not. No. You are not sleeping on that wicker furniture. Uh, number 12. Dorothy borrowed her last name from the show's stage manager, a guy named Kent Zabornek. So it's an oh. actual last name. Number 13, Betty White or Rose. Favorite episode was A Little Romance. In the first season episode, Rose is reluctant to introduce the ladies to her new boyfriend, psychiatrist, Dr. Jonathan Newman, because he's a little person. Oh. Remember that one? Yes, I do. White said that despite the fact that every short joke in the book was used, none of the humor was truly hurtful. Because remember, Blanche like walks in and she's like, shrimp. <laughs> she walks right back out. <laughs> yeah, because she was serving shrimp. Yes. Like, ooh. <laughs> so number 14, B. Arthur or Dorothy did not have pierced ears. And one of the things I love about all these shows is their earrings. Yeah. They were clip on You ever notice like when they have to answer the phone, they they take off their clip-on earrings so they could answer the phone. I never noticed yeah. that. And, like, oh, another, my gosh. Another one of my favorite shows from that time is Designing Women. And they mm-hmm. do the same thing. Oh, because I hate clip-ons. Because, you know, they have the clip-ons, earrings. they had, like, these giant, they're all, like, giant plastic So cute. And, uh, yeah, so they would clack against the phone so they would take them off. I never, I'm going to have to pay attention mm-hmm. to that. Okay. So, number 15, Estelle Getty, who is um, um, Sophia, she had a phobia about death. And she was actually the first one of the four who died. Aww. Um, Which was a definite handicap when starring in a show about four senior women. Yeah. It was a tribute to Getty's acting skills that Sophia always seemed very nonchalant and effortlessly tossed quips uh, in funeral home scenes. What? How old were they, like, their characters at the so, beginning of the show? when the show started, they were supposed to be in their 50s. They were supposed 50s. to be, like, 55. But if you do the math... Um, and I've done the math multiple times. The only one that was truly the correct age was Blanche she, because she was born in like 1932 uh-huh. and the show aired in 1985. So, so were she the was rest like, of them like older than in what their they were playing? 60s. Okay. Yeah. Because, okay. Um, I think they don't look like, like a 50 year old today, they don't look like 50 year olds. Uh, no, no, not at all. Not even Blanche, but I think no. it's their haircuts yeah. and like the clothes they wore. Yeah, it had to have been. Because I think the oldest one was actually Betty White, believe it or not. Oh. The one that lived the longest. Rue McClanahan, Blanche, got to keep all of Blanche's clothes. That was nice. part of her agreement in her contract. Number 17, one episode was autobiographical for Susan Harris, who was the creator. The two-part episode entitled Sick and Tired was based on Susan Harris's real-life struggle with chronic fatigue syndrome. And Dorothy struggled to find a doctor who would take her syndrome seriously and is still relevant for uh many women today Mm -hmm. i don't know if y'all remember that one number 18 blanche's miami home was located in los angeles which confused me because when i went to disney a long time ago i think like this was like 25 years ago i was 13 the only thing i fangirled was seeing the golden girls house so there is a scene where they i don't know if it's a reconstruction of the outside of the home but i guess Mm -hmm. this is saying the actual home Mm -hmm. that it's based off of is in los angeles oh okay it says even though the golden girls official address was 6151 richmond street in miami the original exterior shots of blanche's house were a a home located at 245 north saltair avenue in los angeles according to real estate records the 2901 square foot house has four bedrooms and four bathrooms and is valued at a little over three million dollars the house is still there but is now surrounded by high walls and foliage to discourage crazy people like me who want to go take a picture of it 
Okay, so number 19, Dorothy's flat shoes were a nod to Arthur's personal style. The nearly five foot ten actress once stated in an interview that when she was younger, she wished she could wear heels, but that would have meant towering over most of her dates in high school. Then later over the actors she worked with in theater. By the time heightism is, was no longer a concern, Arthur found that she couldn't balance properly or walk elegantly and even wanted chills. Yet another reason she's my kindred spirit. <laughs> And finally, number 20, the show introduced a new word to television viewers. The Golden Girls introduced a new word to non-Floridian viewers, a lanai. (laughs) Architecturally speaking, a lanai is a porch or veranda with a cement floor and an awning and is sometimes also uh, enclosed by screens. We call that a porch. Yeah, it's a porch. It's the back porch. Of course, we can always count on Sophia to simplify matters. And this is the this is the the scene. Dorothy says, "We're throwing a surprise birthday party for Blanche. I want you to go to the lanai and mingle with the other guests." Sophia, check. What's a lanai? Dorothy <laughs> says, "The porch." Sophia <laughs> says, "Excuse me, Crystal Carrington." <laughs> And that is your 20 facts. It's probably over your Golden Girl Minute. And next week we are going to start recapping uh, and I'm going to give little factoids in all of the episodes. So like in season one, episode one. There was Coco. I don't know if you remember Coco. Coco, who Sophia says is a gay cook. Mm-hmm. And he originally lived with them. Oh. And Coco just disappeared. Like, you literally watch it. And, like, in one scene, he's there. And then in another scene, like, they go to commercial and come back. He's gone. He's gone. Oh, so he, like, disappeared from, like, an actual, like, the middle of yes. an episode. And there's oh. a reason for that. So he didn't die. Uh-huh. Um, But we'll discuss that next week when oh, we talk about okay. that in the Golden Girl Minute. So I hope you all enjoyed this. I'm sorry that I am hacking and cracking. <laughs> Um, but we will be back next week. Hopefully. Hopefully. (laughs) Um, so until then y'all have a good week and we will see y'all next week. Bye guys.